It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only, call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 Three one three eight one four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you to the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, March third, two thousand sixteen. Thank you for joining us tonight on the program. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you tonight. Good to be with you, as always. And uh, behind the controls, Josh is here. We'll look forward to hearing from you tonight. Josh, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. And your special helper there in the in the background uh, will be helping you with some points, I'm sure. And uh, look forward to hearing from you at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. And if you're listening to us live tonight in the chat room below the video feed, as we conclude, uh, well, this has been a whole month. Hey, you know, I was thinking today, this this is exceptional. We've never done a four-part series. Well, the of, listeners can tell us if it's exceptional or not. But No, well, it's exceptional in the, to the extent that we've oh, never right, had right. a four-part four, right. four part series on the Virtual Bible right. Study. Before. I remember a uh, long time ago, an old-time preacher said he he would never preach sermons in series, or if he did... He wouldn't tell people that, that that's what was happening because he feared they would lose interest and quit coming. Yeah. Uh, so we probably shouldn't have announced that we were on a long four-part series, but we did. What we've been we we, we titled our series of lessons um, "Marital Status." And by the way, there was a funny misspelling uh, on the uh, update today. It was "Marshall." Oh status like yeah. martial arts. Yeah, well, we didn't mean that, but it, it could have been taken that way. Yeah. Marital status. We tried to deal with. Every, I, I think that we were able to do so, and I'm certain that the Bible does so. It covers the marital status of every conceivable individual. Okay. We talked about people who were, have never been married, who might be seeking to be married. We talked about the newly married, those married for a long time. We talked about those who have lost a mate, uh, lost a marriage mate uh, to death. And we talked about divorce. All right. Uh, I think, unless someone can point out something that we've overlooked i think every conceivable person would fit into one of those conditions so right. marital status that's what we called it all right tonight we'll wrap up that uh, discussion lord willing and uh we talk about uh, divorce in more detail tonight yeah i promised we we've had a, a longtime listener from texas named bill who ha- he and i have corresponded a number of times he disagrees with us on divorce and remarriage now I, I believe that we take a very, very conservative view on divorce and remarriage. Uh, we believe we believe that uh, God's general rule for marriage is one man, one woman for life. Uh, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. But we believe that there is a, a single exception. If a person's marital partner is sexually unfaithful to them, they can divorce that. They can put away their mate for that reason and remarry without sin. The put away person cannot remarry. All right. I think that's a. Uh, I think that's an extremely conservative view. Most people in the world today do not believe that, uh, and unfortunately, even a number of, of of our own brethren don't stand for that solidly anymore. Okay. 
But Bill in Texas for a good long while has been corresponding, suggesting that there is no exception at all, that there's no exception for divorce, uh, that you can never divorce and remarry. The Bible doesn't allow it, doesn't authorize it. Uh, I've never made any progress in my communications with him, but he, but when he learned that we were doing this series on marital status, he, he emailed me again and recently sent an article, and I'm not sure whether he composed this or not. I, I, at first I thought he did, but now I think maybe he did not. He just forwarded an article to us that he believes states this position. And the article is entitled, 11 Reasons Why Remarriage, Why the Remarriage Exception Clause is Not Taught in the Bible. Okay. And, and so I promised him that at the end of this series of lessons that we're doing, we would deal with that position. We're going to take this article and try to answer it point by point to show why we don't agree with that conclusion. So it's a fairly narrow difference that we we have, but I, but those who hold to the position that Bill takes, and there are there are I know of others who take the same position. Through the years, I've known a, a few individuals who who taught this. Uh, we believe that the, the scriptures teach that there is an exception, one single exception that allows for divorce and remarriage. All right. We'll look forward to hearing from you as we go through the discussion tonight. And we have some listeners who've emailed their comments. If you haven't, you can send them to questions at collegeu.com. Send them anytime if you're not listening to us live tonight, but you have comments. Questions at collegeu.com. And then if you're listening to us live, 877-381-4567 and the chat window to the bottom of your video feed. All right. So we have his article, 11 Reasons Why the Remarriage Exception Clause is Not Taught in the Bible. So we've got 11 reasons here that they'll make. And uh, to our update list earlier today, I sent a link to that article so that you could uh, study it if you wanted to. Uh, Let me see if I can find that link real quick here, Jacob. And Uh, uh, if you want to go, I'll just, uh, are you you want me to put it in the chat room tonight? uh, Yeah, you can. All Uh, right, we can do that. uh, uh, You see it there? Uh, I'll, I will get it here. Wait a minute, I've got it, I've got it. I'll, I'll paste it into the chat room. There you window. go. All right, so it's in the chat room there if you want to follow along as you watch uh, tonight, if you're listening to us in the recording of the podcast, maybe as you drive down the road, don't worry. We'll talk okay. about it and we'll read it as we go along so you uh, get right the there, gist Right there it, it is. Right. So if you're in the chat room, you can see the link to this article that we intend to review. As I promised Bill in Texas that we would do so, we're going to do that tonight. All right. Uh I sent this information out to our update list. We should say before we go further, get on our update list if you're not. Send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Say, add me to the list. You'll get the update each week about our topic for discussion. Are you on the update, Josh? Yes, I am. You, got it, you got it today? All right. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, actually, uh, you'll get a new one next week with a different topic, Lord willing. We're going to move on from this after tonight, but we uh, we send that out every day, every Thursday about 11 o'clock or so in the morning. Uh, Central Time. You also get our weekly bulletin on Tuesdays. We send that out to the same list on Tuesdays. So get on our list if you're not. All right. So the article starts out with the question, do you believe in the permanency of marriage? And I would answer that, yes, we do believe in the permanency of marriage. Uh, And uh, it's a, a, a very restrictive law. It's certainly contrary to the popular trend in society today. Uh, in and out of marriages, divorced and remarried multiple times, uh, uh, no fault divorce, you know, come and go as you please, sort of thing. Uh, and we we agree that there's a big problem that people do not view marriage as a permanent covenant institution. All right, there's no doubt about that. We agree with that. Yes. 
The article is on the Bible defines the word permanent for us. Here are some examples of the plain word of Jesus found in the book of Matthew and from Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians. Man is not to separate what God has joined together. That's Matthew 19, verse 6. And a wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. That's 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. We used those verses when we were talking about marriage and when we were talking about divorce. We believe those verses for sure. There are other scriptures that support these words of Jesus and Paul. Paul said that he preached the entire counsel of God, Galatians 1.12. These words of Jesus and the Holy Spirit are as plain as they could possibly be. Yet man, through time, has been looking for some loopholes around this absolute definition of godly marriage. All right. So here's the 11 points. We would like to deal with them each. Number one, Jesus in Luke 16, 16 through 18, says that if either remarries, it is adultery. All right. We agree. We use that verse. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, the general rule is, as Jesus taught in, in Luke chapter 16, verse 18, uh, he said, Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Yeah. That is the general rule, and that applies in vast majority of the cases of, of the kind of divorces that people are getting these days. They are committing adultery when they put away a mate and marry another. All right. Now, the argument is, see, there's no exception there, so then there should not be any exception, period. Well, uh, let me me take point number two, because point number two just mentions Mark chapter 10. uh, In Mark chapter 10, at verse uh, uh, 11... He said to them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. That mentions no exception either. So Luke 16, Mark 10. Luke's account, Mark's account uh, of Jesus' teaching on divorce does not mention an exception. Now, we agree to that. We quoted those verses when we were talking about divorce. That's the general rule of divorce. But if there if there's another verse of Scripture that gives us additional information on the subject, and we have to take that in consideration, too. I like what Brad said on on this. Brad from Athens, Alabama, says this. He says, this argument fails to take into account all that Jesus had to say on the matter. Baptists, for instance, fall into the same trap when they take John 3.16 as absolute on the matter of faith and works, refusing to consider other scriptures, and and thereby conclude that baptism cannot be necessary for salvation. I could conclude that I am not to love my family, but rather to hate them. If I take Luke 14, verse 26, to be absolute and overriding everything else in the New Testament said about family relationships. What must be going on here is that Jesus is making a general statement about God's rule for marriage in strong terms in order to emphasize the rule. The fact that he adds an exception in another place does not undermine gravity of the rule. We might do the same thing with our children by saying, don't interrupt me when I'm talking but we would be well within reason to expect them to do just that if, for example, a sibling had fallen out of a tree in the backyard. So I, th- I like what Brad has to say there. You can't just park on this verse and say this is all there is. You've got to take the Scripture as a whole. And I know that these good brethren that disagree with us on this subject understand that principle, and they would argue with the Baptists the same way we would. You can't take, you can't take one statement to the exception of the other, you take all and put them together. Right. Josh, you and I were talking about this last night. Yeah, I had a similar thought. I mean, if you take if you take one verse that mentions all you have to do is believe, and you discard every other verse that talks about what is necessary to do to be saved, 
just stand on that one verse that says just believe, then you're missing the whole picture. You've got to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and then take them as a whole. I think that's right. I think that's right. Now, yeah. there, there's, and there, there's some some emphasis here that our listeners can't uh, see, but uh, the, and this will be come into play as we get into furthermore of their arguments. The word disciples here is underlined and bolded. And they're going to make a distinction here that there's some of this teaching that's for Christians today, and some of it was just for the Jews. Yeah, and they're, they're going to make the point. And, and point number two, Jesus was talking to his disciples in Mark 10, verses 10 through 12, uh, which says the same thing. If you divorce and remarry, it is adultery. Uh, Mark 10 is the same situation, is actually the same same circumstance, the same setting. It, Mark 10 is Mark's account of what Matthew recorded in Matthew chapter 19. Yeah. Matthew chapter 19 and Mark 10 are the same occurrence. Matthew's account of it, Mark's account of it. Now, what we often do there, it, it, so, so did, did Matthew contradict Mark or vice versa? Does the scripture contradict itself? No, those verses are not contradictory. Each other. They're supplemental to each other. Right. Matthew just supplies supplemental information that Mark did not include, but it was the same circumstance. It was exactly the same occasion. Was was Matthew wrong, what he said about it, or was Mark wrong, what he said about it? No. Uh, and, and so we, we need to understand that scriptures are, you know, if one said that there were 20 people and another said that there were 5,000 people, that'd be a contradiction. You right. can't harmonize those two. But a lot of times in Scripture, on lots of passages, on lots of different subjects, we take all that the Bible says and and put them together. Okay. All right. Um, let's get into this idea about the disciples because it will come into play here in just a minute. And Brad wants to address that in his second response to us, and this is good. He says the fact that Jesus was speaking to his disciples is not a constraining detail. Mark chapter 16, verse 16, in which Jesus was addressing the 11 in verse 14 says nothing about repentance and confession. Does that mean that we are wrong to conclude that repentance and confession are not necessary uh, prerequisites for salvation, uh, per Acts 2.38 and Romans 10.9 and 10? Another serious problem with this argument is that it flies in the face of something Jesus said in answer to Annas in John chapter 18, verse 20. I spoke openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. This is a bald-faced lie if Jesus were indeed saying one thing to the crowds, but something else to his disciples in private, which is the very thing that point number two hinges on. Finally, this is a very arbitrary distinction, the idea that if the account says that Jesus said such and such to his disciples, it is new law, but otherwise it was just commentary on Moses and can be discarded. The Bible draws no such lines for us, so really the author is making a gratuitous assertion that there is any such line of demarcation. Okay. I think that's a good way to look at it. Now, here's something that I thought was interesting, too. So, point two in the article we're reviewing says that Jesus was talking to his disciples uh, and did not include the exception, if you divorce and remarry, it's adultery. But moving into point number three, the article says, in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9, when Jesus quoted the Mosaic Exception Clause, his audience was the Jews and Pharisees. Now, hang on, hang on to that just for a minute. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 19. Certainly in Matthew chapter 19, uh, 
verse 3, it was the Pharisees came unto him, tempting him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause he goes on to answer? Well, they were laying a trap for him. They were trying to lay him a trap. Jesus didn't get it. By the way, there was, and you can read about this, just there's just been tons written about this. There was a, a controversy in the rabbinical schools of the day. Uh, one, of the, one of the schools of rabbis said no exception. For, for divorcing a wife and marrying another. Another one basically said you could do almost anything you wanted. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to draw Jesus out and trying to get him to take sides in what was a big controversy um, among them mm-hmm. uh, and, and to which rabbis you uh, professed allegiance to. Jesus didn't, didn't take the bait. Right. Uh, he went back to the beginning. He said, have you not read? He that made them at the beginning, made them male and female, and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, they shall, the twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. He, he, didn't, he didn't take the bait. He said, you know what God really intended, you know? Yeah. And he took them back to the beginning. So then they asked, why did Moses command to give a writing of divorcement, to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say, here's the, here's the key verse, verse 9. I say to you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. Mm-hmm. So Jesus, Jesus actually contrasting himself with the mosaic right. situation. Right. He said Moses allowed the writing of divorcement, but I'm telling you what I say about it, and that's how that's read by most people. That he was contrasting himself to what Moses taught. That's on the way the it looks to me. Yeah. But here's the point I want to get to real quick, and then we'll get deeper into this exception clause. The article says he was talking to the when he when he spoke to his disciples he he did not mention the exception when he spoke to the Pharisees he did mention the exception keep reading there verse ten right after he said that his disciples said unto him if the case of a man is so with his wife it is good not to marry wait a minute the disciples were there too yeah let's go back that's an excellent point you know the disciples said wait wait Jesus if you're teaching the disciples took that as teaching that would apply to them yeah. And they said, man, that's a hard rule. And, and said, if it's going to be that hard, maybe it'd be better not to get married at Jesus all. Jesus said, no, wait a minute. You guys got to – I was talking to them. I was talking to the Pharisees. I wasn't talking yeah, to you guys. Yeah, he's not talking – but interesting, too, this is apparently the, the way you determine if it's talking to us or it's talking to the, about the law of Moses. Go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. We know that account. That's the account of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And when he had, was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So Matthew 5 was to his disciples. He was talking to his disciples, and verse 32 says, By saying to you, whosoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Matthew 5.32 is clearly to his disciples. If it's not, then all of, of the Sermon on the Mount is commentary about the Old Testament law, and it's not applicable today. Yeah, that's right. You'd have to throw out the whole Sermon on the Mount as not being applicable to Christians. If that argument stands, it just doesn't stand. Okay. Now, keep reading here. He says, Jesus lived and died under the old law. We agree. Both of these verses begin with, I say to you, meaning that he was correcting their loose marital practices of the day to the existing old law. He's not giving them new law. Provisions under the law. Well, well, let's stop there for a minute. I just simply don't agree with that statement. I don't see how you could hold to that view. The, The provisions of the old law were... Uh, Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, that if if a husband found his wife to be unfaithful, 
Deuteronomy 22, verse 22 says, If a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so thou shalt put away evil from Israel. It was the, the adultery under the law of Moses carried the death penalty. It didn't carry the the right of uh, of. In other words, if Jesus was correcting their view, there he would have pointed them back to not just an exception. He would have pointed them back to you need to put them to death. All right. Yeah. So that this is a critical point here and anthony recognizes that in his response to us anthony from columbia says i've never actually heard anyone take this position for me the whole thing stands or falls at point number three the author's argument basically hinges on a very uncommon interpretation of the exception clause stating that this only applied to the mosaic dispensation is not supportable by the context or the whole of the new testament the assertion that jesus was not delivering a new law or commandment is in direct contradiction to the entire sermon on the mount Further, we know that Christ came to bring a law. He was not simply correcting the old law. He fulfilled it and replaced it. The rest of the author's points are immaterial to the actual issue. And Anthony's right. This is getting down to the, the crux of the issue. If if Is Jesus giving us New Testament law, or is he just commenting and correcting Old Testament teaching? Actually, I think we can go even further on that, Jacob. Notice it, the, the the text in the Old Testament that's under question is Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuter- Deuteronomy chapter 24, beginning verse 1. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of the house. And when she is departed out of the house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of the house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she, after that, she is defiled, for that is an abomination uh, before the Lord. Now get this. Deuteronomy 24 said that uncleanness, he finds that uncleanness. Now that was, that was the crux of the difference between these rabbinical schools. One said the uncleanness was a sexual immorality. The other said it was just something he didn't like about her. She burned the biscuits, basically. Yeah. And, and so one was pretty strict. The other was very loose into yeah. who could. Yeah. But get this. Jesus wasn't correcting their view on that because this says if he sends her out, for whatever the uncleanness was, verse 2, she, when she's departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. Matthew 19.9 says, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoever marries her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Jesus said that put away. Ma- Moses said the put away woman in Deuteronomy 24 could remarry. Jesus said in Matthew 19.9 she couldn't remarry. Yeah. Jesus could not have been correcting their mistaken view of Moses' teaching on that question because Jesus' statement here contradicts Moses' statement. This is clearly a new law. It is not in line with what Moses taught in Deuteronomy 24. All right. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. I think uh, Josh is burning with a comment over there. No, I was going to agree with Greg. There's no way that... Jesus was just given an overall overview or commentary of of what was said in Deuteronomy 24 when things are different. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's exactly what I saw. Uh, I mean, if, if something's Matthew 19:9 says she the the woman who is sent out cannot remarry. Jesus right. Jesus taught she she's put away for this 
Yeah. Or fornication. If he was doing a commentary, it was a poor, it was a poor it was job poor, He missed it. If he was right. doing a commentary on what Moses meant, he missed it because right. Moses said she could remarry. He said she couldn't remarry. We're way long on a break. Let's grab a break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion. All right. We'll take a break. And uh, when we get back, we'll take your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study will continue right after this. Enjoying the virtual Bible study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the virtual Bible study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the virtual Bible study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. Here's some quotes worth pondering. There are many ways to practice idolatry without bowing down to carved pieces of wood or stone. Too many ask how little they can do for God rather than how much they may do. The true measure of your effectiveness is not just what you do, but also what others do because of what you have done. Man, wish I'd said that. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over and the virtual Bible study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. We're back on the program tonight as we talk about divorce. And we consider an argument that uh, states that there is no exception clause is the one we read about in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19, verse 9. But that exception clause does not apply to us today under the New Testament law. We're considering that argument. We disagree with that conclusion. Uh, we're reviewing a, an article that was submitted to us by Bill in Texas, longtime listener, but we've kind of uh, had a consistent, strong disagreement on this question. He sent this article in 11 Reasons Why the Remarriage Exception Clause is Not Taught in the Bible. And so we posted that on our website. We got the link, that, uh, we got the link in the chat room. I, uh, that, that's gone off the screen. Let me, uh, yeah, I'm going to put it back up. If you're looking at the chat room, the link is back up at the bottom of the of, of the chat uh, uh, chronology there, so you can you can look at what we're looking at. Uh, in this point number three, we're going to have to hurry, Jay. We're not going to get done. But in point number three, the author of this article tries to make a very narrow definition of the word fornication. He said. Uh, Provisions under the law of Moses were that a man could contest a marriage. Under the law, a betrothed couple were said to be husband and wife. If the wife had committed fornication, premarital sex, or she was not chaste. And then he goes on to say the principle of the exception clause in the old law can be seen in the story of Joseph and Mary. Read the story of Joseph and Mary in Matthew 1, verses 18 and 20, through 20, and you will understand that Joseph was about to apply the exception clause and put Mary away because he felt that she was not chaste or had committed fornication. Now, I think uh, that a very strong part of the argument being made here is based upon a point not proved, and that is that the word fornication only applies to premarital sexual relationships. We believe that it would apply to that. In other words, if, if, uh, if a man and a woman who are not married, they're not married to anyone, and they're not married to each other. They're committing fornication. They're committing fornication right. if they have sexual relationships right. with one another. Right. right. 
It would the word would apply to that, but the word fornication is a very broad word that applies to all forms of sexual immorality. Adultery, that is, when a married person has sexual relations with someone other than his his or her mate, that's adultery, and that's fornication too. Homosexuality is fornication. Bestiality is fornication. All, all forms of illicit sexual contact are, by definition, fornication. And and the and the Greek authorities can be lined up who define it that way. I mean, uh, we're not just defining it that way arbitrarily. That's what the experts in the language say it means. All right. Now, is there any place in the scriptures where we can see that uh, fornication occurred by those who would be married? Oh, say that again. I don't Do we have it? Are there any references in the scriptures to point to where someone who is married committed fornication, or where it was used, where that word was used? Where that word was used? Oh, I don't know. Okay, uh, I, I thought you had some references there on that uh, in the Old Testament. Oh well, in the Old Testament, I guess that's really where we want to go because in the Old Testament. That's that's the that's the contention. What did the word mean in the Old Testament? Right. I, I, I get your point. You had, you, I was you, throwing you a softball. You're throwing, and you you're missed. throwing me a curve. It wasn't a softball. Actually, my understanding is that the word is only found five times in the Old Testament. Okay. I don't have them listed here, uh, but that word translated fornication is only found five times in the Old Testament, and in each of the five times, it's actually used figuratively, and it's used to describe. Israel's unfaithfulness to God, and that's a marriage relationship. Yeah, there. they were. They were. That, that wasn't a betrothed relationship. That was a married relationship, and the word is used to apply to their unfaithfulness to God, which I think kind of helps prove that that's that this narrow definition that that our, our friends are trying to apply here simply is not carried through in, in application or usage in the scripture. All right. Uh, Brad is in the chat room tonight, and he's sending an excellent email. And in his point number three, as we've been looking at his email tonight, this argument fails to recognize the inconsistent or reconcile the inconsistency between Jesus' prohibition of the of the divorce to remarry Matthew five thirty two and nine, Matthew nineteen nine, and Moses's allowance of the divorce to remarry in Deuteronomy chapter twenty four verse. Yeah, we were two. pointing that out earlier, right? If Jesus had merely clarified what constitutes acceptable grounds for divorce under the old law. This argument might stand, but he didn't. Jesus added a prohibition that Moses did not mention. So then point number three is untenable because it puts Jesus in the position of contradicting the law of Moses, not correcting the Jews' understanding of it. That leaves us with no other conclusion than that Jesus was, in fact, establishing new law. I think that's right. On the point of Joseph putting away Mary... Brad says, this point adds no value to the author's argument. Joseph intended to exercise a privilege privilege that the law of Moses gave him, something about which none of us would disagree. It has no bearing on the question. That's right. We we would agree that Moses, uh, that Joseph would have been allowed to do that by virtue of what Moses taught. We don't have any difference with him about that. Okay. But that doesn't, but that would not, that is not a case of New Testament law on divorce and remarriage. Okay. That's a case of Mosaic law on divorce and remarriage. All right. All right. Um, so I hope we covered that. Uh, again, number five, fornication, pornea, in Matthew 5.30. This is point five in our article that we're reviewing. Fornication or pornea in Matthew 5.32 and 19.9 is not used in a broad meaning in these verses. A comparable scripture is John 8, verse 41 
And that can shed some light on when this same Greek word is used, meaning premarital sex, because the Jews were degrading the reputation of Jesus with this remark. Okay. Uh, In other words, here, here this author is trying desperately to defend this narrow definition of pornea or fornication to mean premarital sex. And in John 8, 41, Jesus said, Ye do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. And so on he goes. So uh, the point there, I think, of, of is that they were saying, we're not born out of wedlock. We're not so illegitimate. We're not illegitimate. We, our father is God. Mm-hmm. He's trying to use it that way. But, you know, to be born of fornication does not prove that that's just premarital sex. There's a lot of... Uh, There's a lot of ways that you could commit fornication and and produce a child. Right. You know, a married man with someone other than his wife could... Could father he could they could, they could produce a child right 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 it, it wouldn't just have to be premarital sex that would be that would cause that it could be a married man or a married woman with someone who's not who they're not married to right and so I don't think John eight prove 30, the point is not definitive at all yeah all right John eight forty one does not prove their point there I think we got to right. say that all right and uh, and Brad's on to that he says this argument makes a gratuitous assertion the author assumes the point that he seeks to prove namely that fornication has a very narrow definition in this case first fornication has a broad semantic range it means illicit, illicit sexual contact that could be sex between two persons of the opposite sex before marriage such thing as adultery homosexuality and bestiality also fall under the definition of fornication. Second, there's nothing in the context of Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9 demanding that fornication mean premarital sex alone. Third, while the use of fornication in John 8.41 is more focused than in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9, it is not as narrow. Now, this is the verse we were just talking about. John 8.41. He says, it's not as narrow as the author assumes. Specifically, fornication in John 8.41 cannot include homosexuality or bestiality because the hypothetical fornication under consideration resulted in pregnancy. But nevertheless, an illicit pregnancy can come about by more than just premarital sex. It can occur in the case of an unmarried man with a married woman or vice versa. Uh, therefore, it is not a necessary conclusion that fornication in John 8.41 right. mean nothing right. but agree, premarital right. sex. Finally, even if it could be proven that fornication in John 8.41 means premarital sex and nothing else, it is an entirely different context. It is a non sequitur. To argue that fornication in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9 must carry the same narrow definition as John 18.41, a passage in a different book by a different penman about a different occasion. I agree. Thank you, Brad. I agree. So uh, we have we have explained why we do not believe that the the situation in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9 is just talking about situations of people who were engaged or betrothed uh and we've explained why we think jesus was not just correcting their misunderstanding of moses's teaching on that we've demonstrated why we believe and, and we've also shown that that the application of matthew 5 32 especially but also matthew 19 9 was not just to the pharisees but also to the disciples of jesus and so there's been a number of things there's been a number of pieces of this argument that have fallen. In other words, if this is an argument that builds on these premises, 
these premises have been proven false down the line. And now, so that's why we can't agree with it. They're still making uh, arguments in the chat room. Uh, TD Spark 77 says there's nothing in the law about the law of divorce for fornication. It was death for fornication in betrothal and marriage. Okay, so we understand that, that that there was death associated with that. Then that's why the then why didn't Jesus teach that in Matthew 19:9? If he's just if he's just if he's just correcting them, right? You, that, that puts uh, that puts our uh, 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 commenter in the chat room in a real dilemma because if that's the case if jesus is just correcting old testament law yeah where well, there's a contradiction there yeah jesus was was saying jesus was actually teaching something different than the law and that's what we've been trying to point out okay all right let's let's quickly go on to um point number six uh in this article there are over 200 modern Day, English translations of the Bible most translate Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9 with liberal terms for fornication such as lewdness or sexual immorality so as to include any sexual misbehavior. These liberal translations after 1960 and the no-fault divorce laws of our land opened the floodgates to the divorce or marriage travesty that we see today. Now our permissive society is asking the same question that the Pharisees asked Jesus in Matthew 19.3. Can a man put away his wife for any reason? Today, our secular courts and now even Christians reply with divorce granted. Uh, that doesn't prove anything. Uh, I, I think it's just a comment on the loose conditions of our society, and we would agree with that. Uh, I actually also agree that the definition of fornication needs to be taken more seriously. I don't think that, I think the idea of lewdness or sexual immorality is too broad of a term. You know, for for instance, if I look at pornography, that's a sexually immoral act. But I do not believe that that's fornication that would allow my wife to divorce me and remarry. And so I think maybe that I would agree that that the definition of pornea in Matthew 5:32 and Matthew 19:9 needs to be more accurate. It's not just sexual immorality; it is fornication, and fornica- fornication suggests literally. Illicit or unauthorized sexual contact between persons. All right. And and I think you would have to have that. All right. Number seven. For the most part, most churches are still condemning homosexuality and in the same breath condoning adulterous relationships of heterosexual married couples who have no right to be married. We're not. We we, we do not condone and adulterous relationships. A few months ago, we talked about the fact that religious folks in the denominational world are seeing the inconsistency. And so rather than condemning the uh, unlawful homo- heterosexual marriages, they're going the other way and saying, well, we'll just allow homosexual We even marriage. made that point. Uh, yeah. We had a yeah. whole program based upon that point. Right, okay. Uh, let's see. He says, uh, our church leaders say they want to keep the church pure, but heterosexual sin, adultery is running rampant with members living with someone else. If they are living with unauthorized, if they're in an unauthorized marital relationship, we teach that they must divorce, separate, uh, we, we taught that last week, in fact. I like Brad sums it up well. He says, this is not an argument. It's a charge of inconsistency. But the charge is based on the author's as yet unproven notion that there is no New Testament approval for, of divorce for the cause of fornication or adultery. It has no bearing to the question at hand. And it does. It, 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 it's, it's throwing dust in the air. It doesn't, it doesn't prove anything. Um, we need to get to the crux of the argument. Is the divorce for the cause of, of fornication acceptable? All right. All right. Let's see. Where are we on time? We're let's let's, grab, let's break. grab a break. We're going to come back. We're going to try to get these last four points. Eleven reasons why the remarriage 
exception clause is not taught in the Bible. We disagree with this. It's posted up on our website right now. We're not going to keep that link up there permanently because we don't think this is teaching the truth. But it's there right now. If you'd like to see it, you can even print off a copy if you want. But we we put a disclaimer at the top that we do not agree uh, with the conclusions in this article. All right, we'll take a break. Get your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. When King David sinned by taking an unauthorized census of the people, the prophet Gad brought word from God that a punishment was imminent. Three days of horrible pestilence came upon the nation. To stop the plague, David was instructed to make an altar and to offer a sacrifice at the threshing floor of a man named Aranau. As David approached the site, Aranau met him and asked him why he came. When David explained the purpose of the visit, Aranau offered to give him everything needed to accomplish the sacrifice. David's famous response was, quote, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which hath cost me nothing. That's 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. This incident raises a serious question for us all. Does our service to God cost anything? As an example, consider the use of our time. Our schedules are usually quite full with the things we need to do and with other things we want to do. When our work and chores are finished, there's an array of recreational activities to pursue. Often it's hard to squeeze everything into a seven-day week with short 24-hour days. Something has to give. For too many and too often, it is our time for God. If camping or golf or sporting events and so forth conflict with scheduled worship times, many folks will compromise. Oh yes, they are at worship if nothing else happens to clash in their schedules, but if something else comes up, they yield. In effect, they're saying, we will worship God, but not if we have to give up something to do it. Do you see it? Their worship really costs them nothing. Applications of this principle can be multiplied, but you can easily see the point King David was making. He knew real sacrifice to God required an associated cost of service. Does your service to God cost anything? That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I'm James Buchanan from Columbia, Tennessee, and I love to listen to the Virtual Bible Study. Use your Internet connection for something good. Listen to the Virtual Bible Study every week. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program tonight, and we'll remind you to check out our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com, to find out more about us. This program is brought to you by the College of Church in Columbia, Tennessee. If you got any questions about what you hear on the program, 877-381-4567. You can call that number anytime or questions at collegeu.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're talking about divorce on the program tonight. We're examining an article, 11 Reasons Why the Remarriage Exception Clause is Not Taught in the Bible. And we haven't seen any reason hold water yet as to why that exception clause I just clause posted that link in the chat room again because it keeps disappearing off the top of the page. I just posted that link in the chat okay. room again. All right. Um, Okay, so let's move on. Number okay. eight. Uh, we've got 11 reasons. Number eight. Number eight says, never in the Bible does it ever say that sin can or should dissolve a marriage. The Bible says that members of the Lord's church are not to take each other to civil courts. Um, never in the Bible does it say that sin can or should dissolve a marriage. My take on that was, so my mate is unfaithful to me. That our marriage is not dissolved because they have been unfaithful to me. Now, I, and in fact, it doesn't have to be. I might choose to stay in the marriage. Maybe we reconcile. Maybe we work that out. Maybe we stay married to one another. And so, the act of sin does not sever the marriage. Where uh, it, it was argued somewhere uh, that where I, I read where someone was saying, "Well, if if fornication severs the marriage, then." 
And the wife doesn't even know that her husband's been unfaithful. So she's living in sin now because the marriage has been dissolved when he committed uh, fornication. No, no one ever said that. We don't teach that. We believe that it can provide a basis for a decision to be made regarding going forward. But the the sin itself does not automatically bring the marriage to to an end. Okay. Uh, What about this uh, taking brother to law? Well, that's a six, five through seven. That's a whole nother question. Uh, and uh, we've, we've, I think we've talked about this before in the past, but there, there's some, some views of math of uh, first Corinthians six. I think first Corinthians six suggests that they were taking brothers, brethren before the civil authorities in regards to church related issues. Uh, I don't think that it necessarily would apply in to every sort of legal proceeding that has to be administered through a court. Uh, you know, uh, if if you and I were co-heirs of an inheritance, uh, can but we have to administer that through the court, and the court has to make an approval or uh, of our action. Could we not do it before a court of the land because we're not supposed to? As brethren, we're not supposed to be going before civil. I, I, you know, there's all kinds of things, the property transfers and so forth that have to be administered before the courts of the land, so to speak. Uh, I really think my view is that First Corinthians 6 is talking about church matters, that that church in Corinth was in big trouble. And they had all kinds of issues going on, and they had even been taking one another before the civil authorities in regards to the issues that they were experiencing in that congregation. I really think that's what Paul had under consideration there. All right. But others may disagree with me on that, but I think that's that to me that makes the best sense. Quick question: There wasn't clarification in the chat room. Did you not teach that sin breaks God's bond of marriage on last week's program? No, not unless the not un, no. If I did, I didn't mean to. Uh, the bond is broken when I choose to put away my God unfaithful mate. You from your part of the bond, yeah. Not hit the other part. If of the I choose to put away my my mate, right, for that cause, right. But if I don't choose to put her away, then I'm still bound. Okay. If I don't put her away for the sin of fornication, I have a choice to make. If I choose to put her away for fornication, then I'm released from the bond. But if I if I choose to stay in the marriage, then I'm still bound. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Okay. Question. Yeah, uh, point yeah. number nine. Yes. Point number nine. Uh, no apostle ever wrote to any New Testament church after the death of Christ that there was a valid cause for divorce and remarriage. Jesus' new kingdom law, the New Testament, is complete and needs no revision to stay abreast of man's decaying morality. Now, here's an interesting argument being made, but I think is absolutely and totally in error. And that's the idea that before something Jesus taught would be applicable to us today, it would have to be repeated by the apostles in something written after Jesus' death. Yeah. Well, of course, all the New Testament was written after Jesus' death. Well, that's a good point, but Jesus didn't say it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, li- uh, literally say it, yeah. Uh, but I think that's just a, such a flawed position. Yeah. Let, me, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Where's that ever repeated in, uh, after yeah. Jesus died? Yeah. That's just one example. 
Well, you can't read that any place else in the New Testament than right here. Is it applicable to us? Absolutely so. You know, if your argument requires you to make, if your position requires you to make arguments like this, that we have to find a place where the apostles repeated what Jesus said in order for it to stick, I'd say that that, that position needs to be examined very, very carefully. Throw that out. We run from that position. If that's, the, if that's the best argument that you've got to support that conclusion, then you've got, you've got nothing to stand on. You know, this is kind of funny because sometimes we we deal with people who think that before something is actually law, Jesus had to say it himself. It has to be in the red letters of your red letter Bible. This is like the inverse this of that. This is the inverse of that. Yep. That is not, what Jesus taught is not applicable to us unless the apostles specifically repeated it. You know, actually, uh, the apostle Paul dealt with that uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He repeated uh, what the Lord said uh, you know, First uh, Corinthians seven verse ten: Unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Notice verse twelve: But to the rest speak I not the Lord. Yeah. And he goes on to, to talk about another scenario. In other words, he was giving additional revelation. He repeated what the Lord taught the apostles. Why Jesus, repeat it if it wasn't if it wasn't applicable? Well, it was. I guess they'd say it was applicable now because he did repeat it. Yeah, but why? He wouldn't have to have that uh, that reference. Yeah. Yeah, but he, he, Jesus said they would. Be, Jesus said when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles, they would be reminded of the things that he taught, and they would be guided into additional all truth. Brad says this point is based on a premise that the author makes no effort to establish, namely that we may discard teaching from the very mouth of the Lord if it is not reiterated in the New Testament outside of the Gospels. That is a pretty bold assertion to make with absolutely no evidence to back it up. While it is sufficient to refute this particular point by noting that the author offers no evidence to support his point, I am trying to come up with counterexamples, that is, things that only Jesus taught, which the apostles did not, but which I imagine that the author would still accept. This task is difficult because I have to try to remember everything in the New Testament, so I may be proven wrong. At any rate, I do not recall anyone but Jesus teaching the following. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as an unforgivable sin. Turning the other cheek. Prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. So, so he just is coming, trying to come yeah, up with some things yeah. where Jesus... Brad, was Brad, Brad and I are on the same wavelength there, and that's why I was pointing out Matthew 18. Yes. Uh, on how to deal with a brother who sins against you. Go to him, one-on-one. If he won't hear, take two or three. If he won't hear them, put it, take it before the church. That's not anywhere repeated in the New Testament. We still believe it's applicable. We follow that principle. Yeah. So, again, that's, 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 I think that may be the weakest point in this whole argument. But okay. I think there are a lot of weak points here, but I think that's the worst. Number 10. Number 10 says, Today's divorce and remarried unions are not a reflection of the inseparable bond of Christ and his church. There's an analogy drawn by the Holy Spirit that a covenant marriage is similar to the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church. Jesus Christ would never divorce or put away his church. Christ's pure, chaste church is his bride awaiting the bridegroom to come for her and take her to heaven for a grand marriage ceremony. Ephesians 5, 2 through 27, Revelation 19, 7, Revelation 21, 2 and 9. What great joy there will be and praise the Lord. Well, I th- uh, certainly... The, the the picture Jesus is pictured as the bridegroom and the church is his bride. There's no doubt about it. We agree with that. Ephesians five certainly lines that out very clearly, and Revelation does as well. But you know when you're drawing analogies, you got to be careful about trying to make a point in the analogy that that is not intended or right. can't be sustained. Right. Yeah. You know, for instance, in the human marriage relationship, 
one of well, both of the partners will die, but one of them will die. And what? How does that work into the church? Does the church die at one yeah, point? I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, then, yeah. Now, the, now, what about when, well, when how you are we lose deal with the church dying? Uh, you know, how, we talked last week or two weeks ago about someone who might lose a mate, and the, the, the scriptures address that person. Yeah. But that's not that's not in this picture of Christ and the church because neither one of those parties will ever die. Yeah. So. Well, our, you're, you're, that's a good. That's a good point, Jacob. And, and you what can't it proves, take it too far. You can't. You can't stretch this analogy uh, beyond, make, to beyond make the its point intention. that you want. Yeah. And uh, Brad here it says again, this point suffers from the failure to consider all the scriptures have to say. While it may be true that Jesus will never divorce his church as a whole because there will always be faithful saints on earth, Jesus himself said that he will reject and cast out the unfaithful. For example, unfaithful individuals in Matthew chapter seven verses twenty one through twenty three, and whole churches in Revelation chapter two. And three, where he says, "I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent." Yeah, and so um, there's, yeah. So the analogy just doesn't work. Okay, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't force the, it doesn't prove the point. You're, you're, yeah, you're forcing the analogy to prove yeah. something that was never intended yeah. to be covered in that analogy. Right. Okay. Uh, Last one, number le- eleven. Number eleven. Where is the forgiveness, the seventy times seven, the humility and the sacrificial love that one is to have for his or her mate? Jesus said this in Matthew 6:15, but if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. How can a Christian who wants to be forgiven of his sins by God not be required to forgive their own spouse of any sin including adultery? Also, who knows but the Christian commanded that who knows but that Christian commanded forgiveness in prayer might lead to reconciliation. Okay, I'm glad that they made this point because this is this is absolutely a total misrepresentation of what we believe on this subject. If my spouse is unfaithful to me and wants and seeks my forgiveness, I must forgive them, and everybody agrees to that. I don't know anybody who doesn't agree. And and the passage of what Jesus taught: if you, if we won't forgive, God won't forgive us. But the point that he didn't cover here is forgiveness does not always exclude the consequences. You may be forgiven and still bear the consequence of what you have done. We can multiply the examples of that. If I went out and killed a man tonight, could I be forgiven of it? Yeah. Would I still have to go to prison? Maybe right. maybe the death chamber? Right. Yeah. I'd be a, I'd be a, a, a forgiven person in the eyes of God yeah. being executed by the state as a consequence of my sin. What so I, forgiveness and the removal of consequences are not synonymous. What if I uh, owned a business and uh, you were my treasurer in that business, and I found out that you've been lining your pockets with the proceeds from that business, and I found out you were greedy of filthy lucre, and it was a problem you had, and you came to me and said, you know, I'm sorry, I've been, I've been skimming some off the top. Will you forgive me? I said, Absolutely. Chances are you're not going to be the treasurer in that business anymore. You've got a problem there. And I'd actually be doing you a favor to not allow you to be the treasurer, even yeah. though I were to forgive you. Yeah. And uh, so forgiveness doesn't mean that there won't be a change in relationships, yeah. in physical relationships, including yeah. marriage. Yeah. But I always stress, yes, say a wife, her husband's been unfaithful to her, and, 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 he, and she finds out, and she, and, and she intends to divorce him. And he, and he says, I know I'm wrong. Please forgive me. Does she have to forgive him? Yeah, she has to forgive him. Does she have to stay married to him? No. Jesus gives an exception here. 
Brett's comments. Again, the author fails to give weight to all that Jesus has said. Jesus has the authority to grant exceptions to rules he makes. Forgiving the remorseful brother is the rule. Divorce for the cause of fornication is an explicitly stated exception from the mouth of Jesus himself. Any other conclusion puts Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9 at odds with the rest of the scripture, not in harmony with it. To amplify that point, consider the author's previous argument that Matthew 5.32 is commentary on Moses' not new uh, commentary on moses not new law if that is so then matthew 6 15 must also be commentary on moses because it is the same discourse as matthew 6 or 5 32 that means according to the author's position that jesus proclaims that moses allows divorce for the cause of fornication but condemns withholding forgiveness from a contrite brother the author claims that one cannot extend forgiveness to an unfaithful mate and follow through with a divorce that makes jesus at odds with himself and this Face of just a few breaths in the same discourse, a position that I suspect the author would dare not dare defend. Also, this may be a bit of a quibble, but just because a man divorces his unfaithful wife does not mean that he does not forgive exactly, her. Exactly. A man can divorce his wife, but not hate her or hold a grudge against her, and likewise a wife with an unfaithful husband. Someone might ask, how is that possible? Well, I may forgive someone, but not be willing to put the same level of trust in that person afterward. A woman may forgive an abusive man, but not want a baseball bat lying within arm's reach. Uh, I may forgive a thief, but still lock my doors. Marriage is the most intimate relationship two individuals can have. A uh, breach of, that, of trust that deep is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to rebuild entirely. I'm speculating a bit here, but it is my speculation that Jesus grants, not commands, but grants, the option of divorce in the case of fornication because it represents the ultimate betrayal. But we can set all that aside. I do not have to prove the Lord's reasons for granting the exception. The fact is that he does grant one exception and one exception only, fornication. And so uh, appreciate that. Now, um, the... Um, uh, what are you thinking? Oh, yeah, I'm thinking about this. Jesus is commenting on Old Testament law, if, if we take their position right. And yeah. that this putting away was just limited to those who were espoused, not married. Does that then mean that if Joseph were to put away Mary for the supposed <laughs> uncleanness, does, that he but, wouldn't be forgiving her? He's an unforgiving guy. Yeah, Joseph, you can't put her away. You couldn't have forgiven her. You, yeah. needed, you need to pray yeah, so and this try is and ca- reconcile. In other words, what so we're saying... you yourself in a trap here. On several of these points, they catch themselves coming and going right. uh, on this, right. and, and so I think you're exactly right. They would say they were saying Joseph would have been doing what he was authorized to do to put her away if he found her to be unchaste. Yeah. Well, where's the forgiveness? Right. You're gonna have to you're gonna have to argue at both places if you're gonna argue at either one. Yeah, that's right. Okay. All right, all right, Josh. So, Josh, your comments. We've totally neglected you. That's no, okay. The whole time I've just been thinking that, that Jesus, the perfect master teacher, God in the flesh, the argument that they're making basically is that Jesus was inaccurate in his teaching uh, and that, you know, he, if he was quoting or if he was going to do a commentary on Deuteronomy 24, that he, he messed it all up. Yeah. I just can't accept the fact that uh, Jesus was a perfect teacher. He didn't make mistakes like that. I think you're exactly right, Josh. All right, uh, the, the article concludes, uh, I won't read all of this, but he says, all men and women are subject to God's marriage law. We agree, believers and non-believers alike. This law is the same one that began in the Garden of Eden, and Jesus brought it, brought this law into his kingdom, Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. King Herod was a believer, and John the Baptist, 
excuse me, King Herod was not a believer, and John the Baptist told him it was not lawful for him to have his sister-in-law Herodias for his wife. We agree. We talked about that last week. John was put to death for telling Herod about the permanency of marriage. Might this be a prophetic foreshadow of things to come? Today, Herod might be a minister, an elder, a deacon, or a member of your church who is married and living with another man's wife. No, not if not if it's an unscriptural marriage. Not if it's an unauthorized. This is a very narrow thing. This exception is very specific. We're, we're certainly not just throwing out God's marriage law. Uh, you can divorce and remarry as many times as you want without exception. We don't believe that, and and that, that's. And I think the fellow who wrote this knows that we don't take that position. All right. Uh, well, it's been a fast hour. Josh, we've missed a lot of your comments, I'm afraid, but uh, do appreciate you being here tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Yeah, enjoyed having you here. And, Dad, uh, a good discussion. Um, on Well, if we disagree with some of our listeners, but uh, yeah. a good discussion. Well, uh, it, I, I, it's been probably overdue because, as I said, for a long time, Bill in Texas has been corresponding with me about this, and we've disagreed, and I've not made any progress with him. But I finally decided we just need to deal with this and put it to rest. And we do not intend to continue to harp on this on this issue. Uh, I think we've given the reasons why we believe what we believe, and 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 I'm 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 convinced that this controversy will not be resolved simply because of our discussion tonight but we've stated the reasons why we believe what we believe and and we'll let it stand at that all right if you've got questions or comments questions at collegeview.com is the way you contact us and uh well we on to another subject next week yeah we and have some suggestions for those su- yeah subjects. send in your questions send in your questions send in your suggestions for topics we'll look forward to hearing from you dad thanks for a good discussion thank you uh, thank you for joining us hope you benefit from our study and discussion of god's word hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the virtual bible study in the meantime we encourage you to put god first in your life study his inspired word the bible and live by it every day you'll never regret it Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.